Our second lesson for this Lord's Day comes from the New Testament, from uh, the book of Acts, chapter 10, and we will be reading verses 34 to 43. And once again, I invite you to turn there and follow along as I read. This is a passage of Scripture, Peter's presentation of the Gospel to Cornelius, the uh, Roman centurion and his household. Then Peter began to speak, I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism but accepts men from every nation who fear him and do what is right. You know the message God sent to the people of Israel telling the good news of peace through Jesus Christ who is Lord of all. You know what has happened throughout Judea beginning in Galilee after the baptism that John preached how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power, and how he went around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil, because God was with him. We are witnesses of everything he did in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They killed him by hanging him on a tree, but God raised him from the dead on the third day and caused him to be seen. He was not seen by all the people, but by witnesses whom God had already chosen, by us who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one whom God appointed as judge of the living and the dead. All the prophets testify about him that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. And herein ends the reading of God's word to us this day. May all praise and honor and glory be to him and to him alone. Amen. Today is Baptism of the Lord's Sunday, in which we remember the inauguration of our Lord's ministry, and I have chosen this reading from the book of Acts as my sermon text because it not only mentions or makes mention of the Lord's baptism and then provides a synopsis of his life and death and resurrection, but this text also lends itself to our secondary focus this morning, which is the ordination and installation of new officers. To place this text in its proper context will require that we refresh our memories just a bit, and recall that at this moment in the life of the early church, the Holy Spirit has been unleashed in Jerusalem, and people have been coming to faith in Jesus left and right ever since Pentecost. According to Luke, the author of Acts, thousands of people have responded to the proclamation of the gospel. And the people have devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the breaking of bread, to the fellowship, and to the prayers. At the same time, there has been resistance to this new movement concerning Jesus of Nazareth, and the Jewish authorities have attempted to put down this revival by hassling the apostles. Their early attempts at intimidation, however, have only resulted in the apostles being ever more determined to proclaim the truth about Jesus' resurrection. 
And as the Spirit of God continues to move in the hearts and the minds of the residents of Jerusalem, the challenge then from the Jewish authorities begins to take on a nastier tone. And they attempt to physically control the apostles' abilities by throwing them into jail, by demanding that they stop communicating about Jesus, by harassing them in public, and so on. In spite of this, the gospel was having an effect that could not be ignored. Chapter 6, verse 7 says, And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. That impact caused some to begin openly challenging the disciples and others as to the merits of the gospel. And some decided one day to take on the deacon Stephen. That was a mistake. Chapter 6, verse 10 says, But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. In other words, they were no match for Stephen. So what did they do? They began to lie. They fabricated accusations. Prevarication is the $10 word to describe their behavior. The Bible says that they secretly instigated men who said, We've heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. They conjured up false witnesses. They stirred up the people against him. They brought him up on charges before the Sanhedrin. And when Stephen finished preaching, he was so powerfully under the control of the Holy Spirit that those who were listening became enraged beyond reason and good sense, and they cast him out of the city where they stoned him to death. And that persecution served to disperse many Christians out of Jerusalem to other places all of them carrying the gospel with them. Like the overripe flower of a dandelion being blown apart with a sharp spring wind, they carried along to other places where they took root and began to grow. And among the first places that the gospel landed was in Samaria. So wonderful was the response in Samaria that Peter and John journeyed to Samaria for a first-hand assessment of the impact of the gospel there. And when Peter finished there, we next find him in Lydda, where he healed a man named Aeneas. And many people came to faith because of this confirming sign, which gave credence to Peter's message about Jesus. But then news that Jesus, or that Peter was in litter, reached the city of Joppa, about ten miles away on the Mediterranean coast, where a disciple of Christ named Tabitha had just died, and her friend sent for the apostle Peter, who came without delay, and upon his arrival he prayed for her, and then commanded her to rise, and she rose up. And a great many more people there came to faith in Jesus Christ. The gospel of Jesus Christ, proclaimed throughout Judea and Samaria, was being utilized by the Holy Spirit to bring more and more people into the kingdom of God. Now from the perspective of those first disciples of Jesus who were with him from the beginning of his ministry, these events must have been amazing. 
For not so long ago, they had all been intimidated and frightened that they might possibly end up like Jesus, strung up on a cross, suffering for their close association with him. But then the Holy Spirit descended and everything changed. And they went from being frightened men, concerned about their personal safety, to become bold ambassadors for Christ, praising the Lord for the persecution they were enduring, for they considered it a sign that they were worthy to suffer for his name. But I doubt very much that they could have anticipated the overwhelming response to the preaching of the good news. Sure, they were commanded to be witnesses to Jesus in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth, but I doubt that they could have really foreseen the thousands of people who would respond to their proclamation through repentance and baptism in the name of Christ. They certainly could not have anticipated the Samaritans' response. The animosity between Jews and Samaritans was palpable. Jews avoided stepping foot in Samaria, and Samaritans didn't mind that they went the long way around. Samaritans did not like the superior attitude of the Jews, but then this Jewish fellow named Philip showed up one day, proclaiming the good news about Jesus, and all heaven broke loose. Philip was talking about this Jesus who once told a parable where the Samaritan was the good guy. Philip was talking about this Jesus who once started a conversation with one of their less than upstanding female citizens by the well that Jacob had dug. And that day Jesus demonstrated that he was interested in Samaritans. And this Philip's preaching was accompanied by displays of God's power and the internal witness of the Holy Spirit convinced them that Philip was telling the truth about Christ's atoning work and they believed. Who would have foreseen such a response? Who would have thought that this gospel was even intended for the Samaritans? Who would have thought that this gospel would have been intended for the Gentiles? And it was while the Apostle Peter was in Joppa that the Lord came to him in a dream, providing him with a vision that taxed Peter's brain. For three times a sheep descended, filled with unclean animals, wildlife that the Jewish ceremonial law forbade Jews to eat. And a voice from heaven spoke to Peter, saying, Rise, kill, and eat. And being a good Jew, Peter refused declaring that he had never consumed anything considered to be profane. And in reply, the voice declared what God has cleansed. Do not declare that to be profane. And when Peter awakens, there is a knock at the door, and messengers from a Roman centurion named Cornelius are there at the behest of their master. Because Cornelius has had his own encounter with an angelic visitor, who has instructed him to send for Peter in Joppa. And suddenly Peter's perplexing vision is beginning to come into focus. Gentiles were forbidden territory for Jews. Jews were not to have close contact with them. They were considered unclean, profane. If you got too close, you might end up a Samaritan. 
But Peter's mind was beginning to see that this command to bear witness to Jesus to the ends of the earth was not about reaching the Jews wherever they might reside, but it was about proclaiming Jesus to one and all, because Jesus was Lord over all. And so Peter accompanies these men up the coast, 32 miles to Caesarea, where he comes to a home that is filled with the friends and relatives of Cornelius. He's a man in whom God has already been at work fostering a love for his name. Cornelius doesn't know why the angel commanded him to send for Peter, but you can imagine the anticipation that must have filled his heart. And so great is his expectation that he invites many others to be present to hear whatever it is that Peter will say. Oh, that every one of us would bear such an anticipation every Lord's day, not knowing exactly what God was going to do in worship, but eagerly expecting that God is about to act such that we would invite others to share it with us. What happens next is a testament to the ministry of the Holy Spirit. For Peter's proclamation of the good news is the instrument through which the Holy Spirit regenerates these individuals gathered in Cornelius' own. Peter's good word to them is a review of Jesus' ministry, his death and resurrection, and his return one day to judge the world. And Peter declares that everyone who believes in Jesus receives forgiveness of sins through his name. And then it is at this point that another unanticipated event occurs. For the Holy Spirit falls upon Cornelius and all who are gathered with him. And they too begin to extol God and offer praise to him in a sign, or in a sign that the same spiritual giftedness the apostles received at Pentecost has now been extended to the Gentiles. And Peter and those who accompanied him we're all amazed that God would extend the promises of the gospel even to the Gentiles. And this changed everything. One of the great tragedies for any particular church, for any denomination, for any organization that in some way bears the name of Christ is when they fail to realize that the primary and urgent task of disciples is to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. Now why is it? Because it is the proclamation of the gospel that the world urgently needs. It is the spiritual cleansing in Jesus Christ that sinners must have in order to live eternally. And throughout the book of Acts, we see time and again that the Holy Spirit raises to new life those who are spiritually dead by means of preaching that focuses on Jesus Christ as the sole mediator between God and man. It is through this kind of preaching that men and women have faith born within them such that they are enabled to lay hold of the promises of God in Christ. And yet we sinful human beings frequently come to the conclusion that there must be a new and improved way to reach people for Jesus. We might develop new strategies that will turn the message about Christ into a methodology 
that if that is followed point by point, it's going to guarantee a church with overflowing pews but they will be members who do not know who preached the Sermon on the Mount. Or we might develop a new message that is softer and gentler so as not to scare anyone away in the hopes that folks can be wooed into spending time with us on Sunday morning rather than sleeping late and reading the paper and enjoying another cup of coffee. Or we might develop a ministry to people that's all about them and instead of being all about God thinking that if we appeal to people's innate sense of self and get them then to come to church, that then we will begin to change their focus and will turn them into a new direction, only to discover that we have simply reinforced what they were thinking all along, that life really is all about them. Beloved, there is no substitute for proclaiming the gospel. Peter does not make use of a sermon that zeroes in on the injustices of his day. He does not regale Cornelius and his household with stories of his personal experiences. He does not engage in a psychological pep talk designed to leave them feeling uplifted and hopeful about the week ahead. He tells them about Jesus. He tells them that God anointed him with the Holy Spirit and power in order that Jesus might do spiritual battle with the devil, setting people free from their spiritual bondage. He tells this household that Jesus was unjustly crucified, but that God raised him from the dead, and that he knows this to be true because he was there. And he and the other disciples shared meals with Jesus over the next several weeks. And he tells them that Jesus then took command and sent them out to tell all the world that he is Lord of all and that he will one day judge the living and the dead. He tells them that Jesus is the fulfillment of all God's prophets and that anyone who trusts in him will be forgiven of all their sin. He informs them about Jesus. He warns them about Jesus. He invites them to come to Jesus. And the Holy Spirit uses that preaching to reach sinners for Christ. One of the common threads that we elders hear when speaking to folks who are looking to join our fellowship is the journey that they have taken in searching for a new church home. And to paraphrase it all, one of the things that emerges They say this, one of the things that we've discovered over the last few years in searching for a church home is that many churches are no longer proclaiming the gospel. What they offer is intended to make people feel good, but instead people are going away hungry. And yet what does Jesus say to the crowds one day? I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. What does Jesus say to the woman at the well? Whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Why would we offer a paltry substitute when Jesus alone is the way to the Father? Or why would we offer something other than Christ 
when the first apostles did nothing but offer Christ to the world. Perhaps it has something to do with the fact that the world, by and large, does not like the gospel. The early believers certainly learned this. The apostles all discovered this. The church, when it is fully engaged in the proclamation of Jesus Christ as Lord, suffers the consequences for that stance, and it is never a pretty picture when persecution sets in. But it is in the face of such resistance that the beauty of God's message in Christ comes into even sharper focus. When U.S. Christian pastor Saeed Abedini was suffering for Christ in an Iranian prison several years ago, the focus at that point in time was very much upon the political efforts that were being made to secure his release. What was not reported so much was that within those prison walls, the gospel of Jesus was being preached and the Holy Spirit was regenerating people to new life in that dark place. And in China and in India and in Pakistan and North Korea and in remote places all around the world on every continent, Christians suffer for the sake of Christ, but the gospel cannot be bound. It cannot be imprisoned. Wherever the name of Jesus is proclaimed and the truth concerning Him is told, the Holy Spirit continues to reach those who will one day stand before God's throne and praise His name for His grace towards them, as we see in Revelation chapter 7. Oh, we are so deeply privileged to live where we do, and to have been baptized and called to participate in the proliferation of this good news. In a couple of weeks, we will celebrate six years in our new denomination, the Evangelical Presbyterian Church. That word, evangelical, is all about the gospel, the evangel, the good news of Jesus Christ. And we are called as officers and members to live into that reality and to live up to that goal of being disciples who tell others about Christ. As we begin this new year, let us as a church not neglect this primary and urgent task. Let us never be sidelined by frivolous and mundane things that will be of no consequence. Rather, let us grow in our passion to proclaim the name of Christ, that all may know that He is indeed Lord of all. In just a few moments, we will be ordaining and installing new officers who will provide leadership to this congregation over the next three years, joining many others who are already in office. But I cannot impress upon you enough the importance that good leadership plays in keeping the gospel front and center in any church's ministry. And it will be incumbent upon every one of you to prayerfully elect those whom God has called to these offices of deacon and ruling elder, and in the not-too-distant future, teaching elder, and hold them accountable to keeping the gospel ever before you, that you might continue to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus. But it will also be incumbent upon every one of you
to prayerfully consider where God is calling you to serve. One day it may be to serve as an officer in the church, but it isn't only there that we have the privilege of serving Christ. We serve the Lord by teaching children the basics of the gospel. We serve the Lord by warmly greeting guests and visitors who are seeking Him. We serve the Lord by bringing a meal to those who are hurting and distressed and offering a word of comfort to them. We serve the Lord by visiting the hospitalized and the shut-in. We serve the Lord by witnessing to those who are lost and wandering We serve the Lord in countless ways. But serve the Lord we must. For we have been set aside for a holy purpose. To be a holy priesthood. To offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God. Again, we are deeply privileged to have been baptized and called to participate in the proliferation of the good news concerning Jesus Christ. Let us not neglect this privilege. Let me invite you to bow your heads with me for a moment as we pray together.